This podcast is sponsored by Salesforce.org. Salesforce.org is the dedicated team at Salesforce that delivers technology to non-profits, educational institutions and philanthropic organisations so they can connect with others and do more good. Salesforce.org empowers higher education with Education Cloud, a set of integrated solutions built on the world's number one CRM, developed for the specific needs of the industry and in close collaboration with the community it represents. From building brand awareness, transforming the applicant experience, enhancing student services, building lifelong alumni relationships, or managing change and optimising technology across the campus, Education Cloud supports institutions to drive student success and institutional success at scale. Learn how institutions are paving the way for the future of higher education and driving all kinds of innovations with Education Cloud by visiting the website salesforce.org forward slash higher ed and exploring the higher education customer stories. everyone and welcome to The Edge, supported by Salesforce.org. This series is all about new ways of doing things in higher education leadership and this is our final episode of this series. Thanks so much for listening in across the past six episodes where we've talked about everything from trust in institutions, the lack of diversity in higher education and what we might do about that, and how asking the right questions around data is essential to improving services. Here's a quick message from Jane Armstrong, Senior Director for Higher Education at Salesforce.org, as we wrap the series. Hi everyone, I am Jane Armstrong with Salesforce.org, and I want to thank all the individuals who listened to our series, The Edge, which sought to share the insights of the leaders in the education industry who are doing things a bit differently to address some of the most critical issues today. And thank you to Sophie Bailey especially for collaborating with our organization to highlight and discuss some of these topics, ranging from data and innovation to the student experience and lifelong learning, as well as diversity and equality. I trust that all of you listeners out there gain some insights on how other universities and institutions globally are looking at these market opportunities. Personally, I'm especially looking forward to this podcast on change makers who are ultimately changing the conversation and challenging the status quo. For those of you who are keen to read about some insights, we recently published a connected student report which explores student and staff expectations to better understand how technology can drive a more connected engagements for both students and institutional success, which is available on our website. We welcome further collaboration with Sophie and the EdTech podcast. And thank you again all for listening. Thanks so much, Jane, and to Salesforce.org for being great partners on the podcast. And keep your eyes peeled for future collaborations across the tail end of 2020. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us using the hashtag EdTechEdge. 
On this final episode of the series, we celebrate changemakers in higher education, speaking to three leaders who have worked to implement new ways of doing things in their own university communities. You'll hear from Liz Shutt, the Director of Policy for the University of Lincoln on the 21st Century Lab project, which is creating a manifesto for change for universities and promoting much needed permeability in higher education institutions to allow our society to flourish at a time of significant upheaval and volatility. Next up is Kimberly Eke, Senior Director of Information Technology at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education, who talks to us about the creation of an immersive technology studio, which is exploring the potential of immersive learning and research in higher education and beyond. And finally, Claire Gordon, the head for the LSE Eden Centre for Education Enhancement on balancing family and career, research versus teaching and learning functions and how to bring academia and learning technologies together for the benefit of the student. At the beginning of each interview, all of our amazing guests provide us a window into their failures and successes over the years, as well as approaches to making change viable before going into their specific projects. So... Let's get straight into it. Here's Liz from the 21st Century Lab to get us started. Brilliant. So I'm absolutely delighted to have Liz Shutt, who's the Director of Policy for the University of Lincoln and the Greater Lincolnshire Local Enterprise Partnership on the line. So welcome, Liz. Hello. Um, So by way of introduction for our listeners, uh, Liz is based in London and works to improve the connection with government and the civil service. She is currently leading the development of a local industrial strategy for Greater Lincolnshire and the 21st Century Lab Project, uh, which is considering the key challenges of the 21st century and what this means for universities. She's also on the steering group for the UPP Civic University Commission. Liz was previously Head of Policy at University Alliance, helping to establish and grow the organisation over a period of six years and working on a range of projects and publications, including on social mobility, student stories, funding, the regional economy and the future of work. She has also worked at Universities UK, Sheffield Hallam University and the Department for Work and Pensions. So welcome again. Thank you. So first and foremost, I should let our listeners know that you're extremely uh, generously um, recording this whilst on your maternity leave, which uh, I shall be eternally grateful to you, uh, your daughter and your husband for for allowing us to do that. So thanks again. No problem. (laughs) Um, This episode is all about change makers in higher ed. So to start with, I've got some rapid fire questions for you. what mottos or mantras do you live by? Um, I think it's it's really listen, just listen, have your eyes ears open um, to what's going on. And I think in my line of work, it's um, a lot about building relationships, about meeting different people, not always um, those directly involved in government, but sometimes those in those outer circles that are also kind of milling around what's happening. And I think the most interesting part is is just seeing where those conversations go. And um, that's why this project was particularly interesting because I got to speak to a variety of people and really hear a variety of different perspectives that we were able to draw upon. Yes, I I love the diversity of contributors in the 21st Century Lab. So we'll we'll come to that in a bit. But um, to crack on, so listening is important, everyone. And uh, hopefully... (laughs) 
<laughs> with with podcast yeah. uh, enthusiasts, hopefully they they're, they're into yeah, that they side of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, number two, what is your pet hate in ed tech or higher education? Um, I think that as a sector, there are a variety of conversations that we like to have, and and they're really important conversations but sometimes it's, it's a bit it's almost like there's a script and things have to be said in a certain way and sometimes it can be quite hard to break out of that so you know when we talk about autonomy when we talk about um the way that we do research the way that we talk about student experience and learning there are often kind of words that we use as, as a sector and we know what they mean and they're and they've we've come uh, comfortable with them over time but I think that sometimes that can mean that it's difficult for those outside of the sector to engage and involve themselves in discussions. And, and what I find really interesting about my role is that I'm working with local government um, on the local enterprise partnership side. And, and it's and it's been really challenging to me to kind of think through some of those things and start changing the way that I speak about things and to people. I love that. Yeah, play, more plain English. Yeah. <laughs> um, what people, projects, books or places inform your thinking? So anything that you found inspiring over your kind of working career um I mean I have to say Mary Stewart who I, I'm lucky to work with as the Vice Chancellor of the University of Lincoln and who I co-wrote um, and worked on the 21st Century Lab project with and um she's just a really inspiring person to work with she's always got loads of different ideas but she's also kind of I think does like challenging the norm quite a lot so so often comes up things from a different perspective Okay, last one. How do you approach so-called change management tasks? Um, I mean, I think it's a lot of what we've talked about already. It's, I think listening is really important. And I think sometimes you can, and especially me, I'm quite a sort of start and finish type person. So I like to get on with something and then kind of see it through. But you have, to, and maybe this relates to thinking about kind of success and failure, but I think Sometimes you have to slow things down and you can't move at the pace you might wish to. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, mean, it means that you kind of often get to a slightly more interesting place and um, and hopefully it's one where people come along board. I and mean, I think I've had to learn a lot about that with the kind of work I've done in the region with the local enterprise partnership because um, I have to be very sensitive to the fact that I was kind of the connection into London, but I'm working mm. in this place that feels very disconnected to that and it is a very different environment. So I've, I've had to kind of really be careful about kind of listening and kind of adapting and, and not going in with a kind of view about how things should be and I've, I've learned a yeah. lot from my experience that's fantastic advice yeah it's taken me a while but yeah when you slow down and things sort of mull and mature yeah. uh, you, or you sleep on things sometimes they, they they sort of come to you rather than sort of trying to chase the answer all the time absolutely I think sometimes you can have days where you're really stuck on something and and I think over time you kind of have the experience to know okay well if I come back to this later it will be all right but if I just keep trying to hammer away it it, it, it might not get me anywhere today <laughs> absolutely um so on to the 21st century lab um for our listeners a quick intro um and this was published in the the first 21st century lab uh introduction of the publication. So 21st Century Lab has been investigating different perspectives on our age and its future. The lab articulates the challenges and opportunities for universities in our age. We believe that first and foremost they should be for the benefit of society and should seek to support development, inclusion and the enhancement of people's lives 
while respecting our planet and its diversity. And the project hopes to provide a provocation for the sector to look beyond its current preoccupations to future needs that education and research should address. Um, so phase one of this was seeking thoughts from diverse global leaders. Um, and then the subsequent phases were um, establishing a university thought group from institutions and policy units uh, that will work through the questions and ideas articulated by those original uh, leader contributors. Um, and then, um, as we've just discussed, there's been the publication of a sort of manifesto of ideas uh, for the use of universities um, in the 21st century. So when I came across this project and, and learned about it and knew we had this episode uh, coming up, I was so excited to connect because it's absolutely what we wanted to talk about. So I'm very excited to find out um, a bit more. Um, just to start with, um, I've just read the document with all the um, edited interviews with diverse global leaders. So you've got people there like the chief executive of, of Siemens UK, who you might expect, but then also people like um, uh, Judy Friedberg, so a freelance media consultant and journalist who's worked across different modes of media, but interestingly in that freelance capacity, which I think is quite significant given where the sort of world of work is going. So um, I've put here, uh, this is a refreshingly outward looking initiative from a sector which is sometimes accused of being myopic, what lessons for universities did you find from these thinkers and their responses? Well, I think, first of all, um, when we set out to do these interviews, we very deliberately wanted to speak to people outside of the sector mm. um, because we wanted a different starting perspective for our un, un, um, unfolding thoughts about kind of the role of universities in the 21st century. And it, in fact, actually, when I went to go and interview each of these people, there weren't very many questions about universities. So the bulk of the discussion was about their perspective from wherever they sat, whether that being a cultural organisation, um, a company or the Bank of England or wherever, on the kind of the changes that they saw unfolding. So we, whilst we did have some discussion about universities, it was very important to us to kind of get that wider perspective um, because we, we, we wanted to break away from some of the kind of conversations that we already have within sector. Um, so I think that that's a really important kind of setting for it all. And then in terms of the university, I think, you know, a lot of the views were ones that we've heard before about lifelong learning and the way that careers will be changing and uh, with students kind of going in and out of work and, and possibly coming back into to learning throughout that time. And then also sort of thoughts about kind of the role of research and how research connects. So I don't think there were necessarily new thoughts about universities. And we've had many discussions on those themes in the sector over a number of years. But I think the kind of the different part to it for us was the fact that we kind of got that broader setting. Um, and actually, for me, some of the interesting things that came out were based on the kind of the reflections of their own sector. So, um, for example, when we kind of were talking about kind of cult the role of culture mm. within the 21st century, um, uh, uh, we kind of had a really fascinating um, discussion with Hilary Carty, who's the director of the Claw Leadership Programme. Um, and she was just talking about things like the role of culture to slow things down in a world where things are very fast paced and we don't always get a chance to think through properly what our view is on something and that, that that's a really important role. And actually, so that kind of translates very well into the kind of the role of universities. And how do we slow things down in a world where kind of leaders are expected to make very quick decisions? Um, so that, it was kind of some of those nuggets that I kind of almost took um, more than kind of necessarily the direct discussion about universities. 
Absolutely. Um, I, I really enjoyed um, and I would encourage um, any listeners to go and read the insight into that particular leader's initial world of work and how that's changed over, say, 20, 30 years. Yeah. And I mean, I've got some of my favorite bits down here. So from Professor Mary Stewart or the VC of the University of Lincoln, this project is also importantly about local and regional issues. People experience those global challenges in their locales, not in some amorphous global village, which no one inhabits, which I love. Mm. Um, And I put here, um, you know, it's quite interesting for the university because, you know, they're often courting international students whilst playing a sort of placemaker locally so there is that sort of tension as well isn't there yeah it's definitely a tension but it 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 cannot you know I think that there's a lot about how universities play a bridging role but it's Mm. but sometimes we position that role as though the university is doing something for its surrounding area and I think the really important thing that we've learned throughout this project is, is the importance of working with that that local area and so you know, whilst the university is kind of out there and picking up all kinds of signals from the world around it and kind of even bringing people um, from an international context into the local setting, they also have to be alert and listening to what's happening in the locality and how do you marry those two things without being seen as as, as kind of on the outside. I think it's a really tricky thing to pull off. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think we say throughout both publications that we, we don't think we have all the answers to these things, but but it, but it's the kind of degree of complexity and how these different issues intermarry that that are really important to be alert to, and that universities should be able to play a good role given the kind of different um, facets of what universities can do across its kind of research, teaching, and learning functions. Absolutely. Um, I've got I've got another one here that I really enjoyed was from um, Andy Haldane, the chief economist uh, at the Bank of England, uh, yeah. and and it said. Um, As one such institution, the future university may need to be a very different creature than in the past. It may need to cater for multiple entry points along the age distribution. Rather than focusing on the young, it may need to cater for multiple entry points along the skill spectrum rather than focusing on the cognitive. And he talks about this being a a multiversity. And I thought that was quite interesting with regards to, you know, we can come on to the manifesto that has come out of this work, but the idea of a sort of more permeable university. Yeah, and we, yeah, we do take that idea forward very much in the in the manifesto. Um, so I think kind of what's interesting about that is, um, you know, when we started thinking about the 21st century, there was a lot of focus, the issue of the automation of skills and what that means for kind of graduates as they go out into the world and what that means for how universities should prepare them. Um, and as we kind of move forward, we kind of start to realise that um, yes, sometimes that mean that, that might mean that they're coming back into education throughout their career, but also that when you're equipping them, it's not about sort of sitting down and looking at kind of um, what's happening with digitalization and various other aspects and, and coming up with a new curriculum that prepares students for that. It's the very fact that it's changing and it's changing rapidly and it's unpredictable that we have to prepare our students for. So then you can start to think about, well, how do you how do you support them to be adaptable in that world rather than kind of giving them some skills which they have to continually refresh and 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 then we were kind of thinking about well you know what what about the role of research what about the the um, process of research where you're kind of you're going through a process where you're kind of testing theories you're playing and you're kind of looking for different solutions those skills in themselves have have very much um uh, applicable in in this in this kind of 
changing world. So if you're working in this world, which is very changeable and unpredictable, mm. how do you adapt to that? And you know, the things that we can examine in very particular set subject areas, actually, if, if, if anything is able to be examined, then it's likely to be able to be automated. So so it's, it's the kind of, it's the fuzzier things that perhaps you can't examine, but uh, uh, may become more and more important to equip our students with. And to kind of give our listeners a sense of the process that you went through um, with the 21st Century Lab project. Yeah. Um, so you, in the initial phase, it was doing the interviews. Can you yeah. talk about how you then sort of consolidated that into some uh, recommendations for the sector? Yeah, so, I mean, the first publication which we talked about was a range of um, thinkers and leaders that we spoke to, and, and we really wanted to make sure we were speaking to people in different worlds. So we had kind of some tech investors, startup people, um, as we said, sort of Bank of England, but also people working on kind of the, in the environmental and sustainability field and those from the cultural dimension. And they were, they weren't, we weren't looking to kind of create consensus with those interviews. We were very much kind of wanting to get the, the, the view of the world from the diverse range of voices um, and so when we came to the second publication which we sort of wanted to be a response to that public, uh, provocation we was you know we had a very broad range of ideas that we had to try and bring together um, so we started by trying to think through well what are the key challenges that we can draw out from um, these interviews as kind of 21st century um, uh, grand challenges if you if you like um, so we, we came up with 10, uh, which I can just run through a few just to kind of give you a sense of the types of things. So and we had things like mitigating environmental and ecological damage, increasing inequality of wealth and income, civic disaffection, uh, avoid of vision and foresight, um, changing economic powers, technological disruption, identities and changing norms in society. And I mean, I won't read through them all, but it gives you a sense of the scale of, of, of the types of things we were thinking about that we drew from those interviews. And, and we had a reference group, um, which was drawn from across the sector, um, with representation from Australia and Canada, um, South Africa, and uh, as well as the UK and a variety of different institutions um, helping us to think through this. And, you know, as, as I'm sure you can imagine, we could have spent a year discussing these challenges and coming up with a list. And I think what we realised in discussing these was that the importance wasn't necessarily in the 10 challenges we came up with and the titles that they had. It was the kind of more about, well, how do these things interrelate? And also how might they change? And the fact that these things are so difficult to pin down is also a reason why um, being more permeable is so important because... You know, this is our view of the world right now based on this very particular project. Um, but universities have to continually tune in in order to adapt and kind of um, stay relevant. So it, it's, it, it's kind of trying to pin down a very broad set of ideas that were drawn from the interviews, well sourced to kind of trying to keep some flex in it and, and kind of realising that the very nature of the 21st century is that it's, it, it's in a state of flux. And if you were to sum up the main recommendations in the manifesto, how would you go about doing that? Um, so that I mean, there's a central concept of the permeable university, and we talk about that um, in relation to the kind of these three core um, activities. And it's all about tuning into these changes and kind of being responsive and kind of being part of it. Um, so, so for example, in the kind of educate section, we talk about things like. Um, a renewed idea of the community of scholars, which includes students as part of it. So it's not kind of students and their teachers. Mm. It's a kind of um, more of a, um, a, a thing where I guess we recognise that students are out there in the world and kind of 
experiencing changes in the 21st century in a different way to um, those from within the institution. So how do we kind of use that and kind of feed that back into to what the university is delivering? Um, it's things like thinking about kind of how do we provide opportunities for inter and multidisciplinary learning? Um, how do we think about kind of um, more permeability between different parts of the education system? So when we were thinking about things like governance, we were thinking about the fact that kind of often, um, you know, school governance is they will have a representation from university on or but, but how often do, does university governance include um, a perspective from schools? Um, mm. Yeah, and how, how do we kind of learn across those divides and think about kind of more fluidity for the learners as they move through um, through that? Um, so that's kind of how that permeability idea plays out in education. Then in kind of research, we're thinking again about kind of interdisciplinarity, um, but we're thinking also about the kind of different skills we have in different types of disciplines and different uh, type ways of doing research so actually kind of there are a lot of skills in the way that we do research to tune in and to listen and to kind of draw society more into the discovery process and we're thinking a lot about this idea of kind of the the kind of charge against experts and expertise that we've kind of been had thrown at us over the last couple of years and how do we kind of move more beyond that kind of them and us idea of that and how do we kind of embrace um new elements of social media and kind of things that could be seen as quite challenging to um, mm. traditional holders of knowledge and expertise um, I, how to with that. I, I love that point because um you know that in some ways you know this this um mistrust of expertise is really worrying um yeah. but in another way um like you said the i suppose with the access to technologies and um, connectivity through the internet to knowledge some of our younger people are are more self-starting in that way or entrepreneurial not mm. to say that all of them are but I, I'm particularly drawing on um, the experience of one of the contributors in the first report who worked across uh, Apple and Alibaba and yeah. she, she put this which made me think about this um, when I joined Alibaba Jack Ma asked if I wanted to manage the marketing initiatives but I chose to be a product manager who builds products I didn't have any technical background, but I asked for three months to teach myself. The internet was new for everyone, right? I thought if the engineers are learning new technologies, so can I. Mm -hmm. Jack is very open-minded and encouraged me. And in six months, I was head of the Alibaba product team in China. And today, my products still generate over 1 billion uh, yuan revenue for Alibaba annually. Um, Which I just thought was so, wow, you know, telling of uh yeah how she kind of tackled that problem it's quite interesting yeah I mean and, and she you know all, all these people are very you know very very impressive and, and the stories that they have to tell but I think there's something there for all of us in that kind of um yeah how do we find how how do we find our way using these tools um that are there and you know sometimes it's the tools in some senses are there for everyone but the knowledge of how to use those tools mm. so so again what's the role of universities within that um I think it's a really interesting question. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and so, so also within research, we sort of talk about this idea of um, near to teaching research, to kind of kind of closing that gap between teaching and learning, and partly because we think that there are really valuable um, skills and experience that you get through the research process. So I was just saying when we did the survey of students and, and alumni, it was really interesting to find that the ex- where they ha- had had um, access to kind of um 
engagement with research and kind of we 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 defined it in different ways kind of at the lowest level kind of a a, a lecturer kind of mentions it in it when they're talking about kind of a particular um theme um but at the highest level kind of um i guess kind of students are able to kind of um, do their own research projects or kind of work with an academic on on their research project um and we kind of found a positive correlation between having kind of um, more hands-on experience with research during their time at university and then whether they would say they would be more likely to keep continue engagement with the university after mm. graduating whether they would recommend the experience whether they could see value in the university and what they could bring to the kind of um, challenges in their their workplace so that that was quite interesting very interesting and um i like one of the other points in in the earlier publications uh, it was from one of the investors who said I don't think it's fair for students to graduate with a degree in art or history without having a basic set of math skills or global yeah. trade knowledge or law or even ethics so it goes back to that multidisciplinarity bit that you mentioned as well yeah and it was really interesting because when we you know we had these grand challenges that we um, came up with and that language of grand challenges is very familiar in the research world and kind of they've I think they've kind of used it really successfully to kind of spearhead more interdisciplinarity and kind of working across universities. Um, but it was quite interesting to then use that thinking within the context of teaching and kind of, okay, we were thinking about grand challenges. What does that mean for what we need to impart to our students? Um, so it was quite interesting to kind of use that language, but in a slightly different space in the university. Brilliant. Thanks, Liz. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I'm delighted to be on the line with Kimberly Eke, Senior Director of Information Technology at University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. So welcome, Kimberly. Thank you very much. So be glad to be here. So by way of little introduction, Kim helps advance the strategic goals of the university by aligning IT strategy in areas of research support, data integrity and security, project management, academic and classroom technology and other key initiatives. She oversees agile teams responsible for all IT services, including desktop support, academic and classroom technologies, and web design and app development. Kim provides oversight for the short and long-term strategic direction of IT services intended to support both emerging needs and creative ambitions of faculty, students, and staff. And um, I've got here that previously Kim was Associate University Librarian for Teaching, Research and Learning Services. And in this capacity, uh, Kim led an impressive team of librarians that identified and piloted new library services intended to meet the changing needs of scholars and support new pedagogy. So um, that work spanned uh, community, government, research data curation and management, open access and multimodal publishing, digital pedagogy and learning analytics and emerging forms of library collections and preservation challenges, including apps, digital ephemera, 3D worlds and web archives. And uh, as if that wasn't enough, you also provided oversight for the campus learning management system, which served uh, 23,000 students daily. Uh, so welcome again. Oh my goodness, thank you. <laughs> So I've got one of your recent projects, uh, Kimberly, was, uh, was the Pen Immersive. So I've got here, Pen Immersive is a pen libraries initiative to explore the potential of immersive learning and research in higher education and beyond. Um, 
and we can kind of go into that, but uh, I've got that it was a community-led research project to explore the, uh, the potential applications of virtual reality, augmented reality, and 3D modeling, scanning, and printing in teaching, research, and learning. Um, and for those listening, um, obviously I've given a bit of background here, but I'd also recommend going uh, go and check out the Pen Immersive blog, which is penimmersive.blog. And uh, some of my favorite post titles there include, if we get this right, nobody explodes and, uh, <laughs> and using embodied labs to support end of life education. So some really interesting stuff to dig into. Um, Kim, if I remember correctly, we connected, we were going to try and meet face to face at Reimagine Education in London. Um, that is correct. Yes. <laughs> Um, and if, if I understand correctly, you're also a listener to the podcast. I am. I listen to it very regularly. So thank you for all that you do. Well, that's fantastic. So it's always good to meet listeners in person. Um, so this episode is all about change makers in higher ed. So I've got a few rapid fire questions for you. Um, sure. To start with, in your role, what kind of mottos or mantras do you live by that allow you to get on with some of your more interesting work? So, you know, for example, there's ones like um, ask forgiveness, not permission. Are there anything, mm-hmm. are there any kind of uh, mottos that you live by that kind of help you get on in your work life? There absolutely is. And even my team now is repeating it and it is don't get it right, get it written. And so in that spirit, we're just trying to keep moving forward, not worry about perfection um, and focus on the learning in the action. That's fantastic. Yeah, you can get a bit paralyzed by trying to do things perfectly and mm-hmm. it doesn't really exist perfection, I don't think. It's unattainable. I don't think so. <laughs> um, what is your pet hate in ed tech or higher education? Oh, geez. I mean, let's see. I think it would be, uh, I call it a lack of imagination sometimes. I think not necessarily in ed tech, but in higher education, we're very confident in the systems and the structures and the longevity uh, that we've had, that privilege. And I think that it's time to reimagine and explore and in that spirit of don't get it right, get it written, try some new things and allow them to live and flourish a little bit. And I've found that in my experience, that's been a challenge that I look forward to continuing to fight the good fight. Yeah, fight the good fight. Absolutely. Um, Well, just on that one then. So um, I've got here, how do you approach change management tasks? So some of those things that you've been involved with, I would imagine involve a whole range of different people working across the university. So how do you go about some of those difficult tasks? Yeah, I I love change and I love working with people. And so I think that my um, philosophy has been that change really does happen one person at a time. And I try to uh, find the energy where it exists, the positive energy that's going to help move things along. I think that with some of these projects, um, for example, like when we had to move a, a campus from one learning management system to another, what really helped was finding a few champions staying low and under the radar as we were exploring and figuring things out. And then we saw this kind of momentum build and that's really exciting. And I think that the big piece of that is like, we might have a 
idea of the direction of change in which we want to move, but bringing everyone's ideas in and letting them shape and form it is what makes it really exciting and also makes the change happen. And what people, projects, books or places have informed your thinking? Oh, geez. Gosh. I... Let's see. I would say one of the earliest ones was a learning management system, moving it. It took seven years, Sophie, to move from one system to another on a campus a size of 30,000. So um, that was an initiative that I was responsible for leading and working with faculty governance committees and the senior leadership and students. So that really shaped uh, my thinking. I think also I've been able to um, do a a workshop at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, California. And that workshop was really um, inspiring and led me to think about how we get people to engage in thinking about possible futures, not a particular future. And Mm -hmm. that's especially important now, I think, with all that's happening in the world to not get bogged down in certain details, but really imagine scenarios. Um, So I think those are two big ones for me. Fantastic. And um, I've got here, what's your biggest failure and your biggest success? So something you think, oh, that didn't go well, but I learned from it. (laughs) And uh, something that you're really pleased with. Sure. I think that one failure uh, was when we started a group that was focused on, it was in higher ed, and it was a group that was developing instructional multimedia, high end, um, and it was based on a different business model than is the tradition in IT. And so it was a fee for service, and I basically had animators and artists and developers, and uh, we were developing curriculum, and it was really exciting and wonderful. But then the economy uh, started a recession, and it really put those individuals at risk, and that whole arm of our department was shut down. And uh, that was a failure in that, you know, people lost their jobs, and that was really painful. And I think it also taught me about how important it is and how um, strong the structures are that we have in higher ed, especially around the financials, and really understanding those and um, being prepared for what that means when you're trying to do something new is critical. On the flip side, I would say uh, success is what I hope we're going to talk about today, and that is Pen Immersive. That has been one of the most rewarding professional experiences that I've had. And in large part, it's because there's such an interest and excitement around the campus. And it's got an energy all of its own that really allows me to bring people together and spotlight what they're doing. It really doesn't feel like work at all. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Yeah, if you can experience work in that capacity, then uh, then you're doing well. Um, so, Pen Immersive, can you tell us a little bit about how that project came about and how it's evolving as well? Certainly. So, when I was at the Pen Libraries, as part of our teaching, research, and learning services team, we were looking at all of these different kinds of media and uh, technologies, and we had in the library 
things like VR headsets, Oculus Rift and HoloLens. We had 3D printers and scanners. And part of what that initiative was intending to do was to help people outside the library understand the services that we had, but also how they were connected. And really, as um, students and faculty were starting to work in building more immersive experiences in their research and in their teaching, the library had um, one piece of that larger community puzzle. And so it started by some colleagues pulling faculty and staff together who were working in this space. And we sat around a table, and it may have been about seven or eight of us. And I was so impressed and amazed by the incredible work that these people were doing to overcome technical hurdles in just the technology alone, and then also being at the forefront of their academic disciplines, really pushing the boundaries. And even though they were all working in different spaces, such as archaeology or the health profession or, you know, videos, whatever they were doing, they felt, it seemed like they felt like, oh, we're all, we're all facing these similar challenges. I've met my people. And from that, we started to put together some structures to see if more people around the university uh, would have interest and want to tap in and also teach us. Because we saw it as an opportunity to lift everyone up to elevate the conversations on campus and to really increase awareness about what the potential might be as well as some of the pitfalls. And, and now the project's a bit further down the line. Has the community grown and, and what are some of the examples of how sort of faculty and other colleagues are, are using that resource? Sure. Yeah. So it really, it is a community-led initiative and I think the way it's evolving is um, that Many people feel ownership of the name Pet Immersive and also of the activities. And so one of the things um, that I'm doing right now, we'll be pulling together a group of people just to hear what they're up to to get a new status report. Because part of this is everybody's heads down working. Mm -hmm. And so some of the things that I've been hearing about is there's a, a group in medicine that is using the HoloLens and VR mm -hmm. in terms of thoracic surgery. Wow. There are groups that are doing things um, in archaeology. They continue to work in archaeology. I would say there is some amazing 360 video coming out from different groups around the campus. Um, Let's see, we've got, there is quite a bit of research happen, happening in the health professions. And so part of what I'm hoping that we'll do in March is bring these people together and, and hear more about what they're doing. Because honestly, it's almost impossible to keep track of at a university this size. And, and what's the kind of effect for the students? Is that then obviously going into the curriculum that they experience and the resources and so on? That is a great question. So there are some students who right now are working, building immersive experiences. There are definitely many students who are engaged in 3D modeling, 3D scanning, 3D printing. Um, one of the things I hope we can assess at this meeting is the extent to which it is integrated into the curricula. Is it growing? I anticipate that it is. One thing I can tell you is um, part of the impetus for pulling this group together again, is that 
I received so many emails from students asking about it. You know, students are even talking about wanting to come to the university because they've heard about this initiative, which is exciting. So I think an untapped potential, at least this year, is to, to really connect with those students, find out what their interests are and what they're doing and how we can support them. And then for you, which are some of the change makers, you know, in higher education or more broadly outside of the sector that you uh, draw inspiration from? Sure. Let's see. There are so many. I mean, we have so many people in our wonderful community. I think the, the Reimagine Education Conference is definitely inspiring to see the kinds of things happening around the world uh, in EdTech broadly and in these immersive spaces as well. There are a lot of libraries doing interesting things, Mm. and I think that's fantastic because one of the wicked challenges that we have in front of us is as we create these media, you know, what are the challenges around preservation? How will scholars in 50 years look back at some of the things that scholars today are producing? And how do we ensure they have access to those? So I think that's really exciting. Um, I mean, there are people like Brian Alexander, who I find inspiring. He's always keeping us looking ahead at what's coming next. I love IDEO. I I like um, places where I can learn facilitation techniques and how to draw on the strengths of groups. So I find that inspiring because I really believe that, as you mentioned, we have this big community, so talented and diverse to bring them together whenever we can and uh, try to move the needle forward, as they say, is um, something I'm very interested in. All right. Well, thank you. It's so gracious of you to invite me to this. I appreciate it. No, it's brilliant to hear about your work. So yeah, have a great day and uh, we'll catch up another time. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. So yeah, absolutely delighted to have Claire Gordon, uh, who is head for LSE Eden Centre for Education Enhancement on the line. So welcome, Claire. Thank you. So in one line, I've got here, uh, the Eden Centre is all about fostering teaching and learning excellence in the social sciences. Um, But for our listeners, a little bit of background. So the Eden Centre was established in October 2019 and is a proactive developmental centre of education expertise the clear focus on academic staff development, curriculum enrichment, and digital innovation. Um, and really interestingly, each academic department at the LSE has its own dedicated Eden Centre departmental advisors offering evidence-based guidance and expertise on academic staff development, curriculum enrichment, and the use of learning technology expertise in teaching and learning. Um, so... This podcast episode, Claire, is all about change makers in higher ed. With this centre being relatively new, I'm really looking forward to finding out about how that got set up and, and all of those good things. But before we start all of that, I've got some rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit. So number one is, uh, what mottos or mantras do you live by? I, I suppose one of the mantras I try to live by is um, a very simple one, which is don't judge. Um, it's very easy to jump to conclusions um, about things people are saying or their responses to proposals, to situations. And, it's, and, and I think I try and encourage myself to 
step back uh, and, and think about all the different things that might be affecting them, the complex situations going on in their lives, both, both professionally and personally, and just try and rather than be jump to conclusions too quickly or be dismissive, just step back and understand. Um, a second mantra, which I, I would say I, was, I, I try to, but I don't know that I'm that successful at it, is, is to try and aim for things to be good enough. We have to do so much um, here um, in, at the Eden Centre. We have a lot of demands on our time and we're engaged in all sorts of exciting activity. And I think my perfectionist streak would like us to do perfectly at everything we do and that's just not possible. So I try and say to myself, all it has to do is be good enough. Um, and also I try and do that to not stress out my colleagues as well. <laughs> that's great advice. And um, I think the BBC today are doing some kind of initiative in Salford about um, bringing people together who have opposing opinions and actually getting them to sit down and talk to one another. So very on topic with your not judging, I think. That's interesting. And sometimes in the classroom, um, when when colleagues ask for advice about how to talk about sensitive topics, one of the pieces of advice we would give um, would be, well, why don't you uh, assign to the student to occupy the opposing position? Um, mm. So it distances them from their own what might be very um, embedded views and opinions and forces them to try and see things from another person's perspective. Yeah, great idea. Um, number two, what is your pet hate in EdTech or higher ed? Okay, so there's two, I've got two here. One is a sort of kind of macro level pet hate, and that is that um, I work in a research intensive university, uh, and and basically I find it problematic that education is quite often seen as second cousin or second second citizen in second citizenship place to to the priorities of research, rather than seeing mm. the complementarities between the two. I also have a slight pet hate for um, typos. <laughs> And in messages, and um, I make them myself because quite often I'm writing things in a hurry, but um, I guess that's something I have to also learn to think, well, it's good enough. If I've communicated my message, it's good enough. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst. If I send a tweet and I suddenly realise I've used the wrong form of a word or a misplaced apostrophe, is the social shame is, is quite unbearable. It is, and you can't <laughs> edit them. You cannot edit them. Um, on, on Facebook, you can edit your post, but on a tweet, mm. you either have to just let it go and try to be zen or delete and redo the whole thing. Exactly. Um, okay, what people, projects, books or places inform your thinking? Okay, so um, I suppose in the world of educational development, um, I'll start with something at a sort of philosophical, political level, because I do think that even though we're trying to um, support and enable and inspire nuts and bolts of teaching, learning and assessment, I think there's a strong values underpinning to the work we do and also power dynamics that you need to interrogate. So I love the work of Paula Freire and Bell Hooks um, about who very much speak to me about notions of transformational education and and the democratizing possibilities of teaching and learning for everyone um, so that everyone, irrespective of their background, can benefit from that transformational education experience. Um, On a day-to-day basis, one of the books I've really um, got a lot out of um, recently um, in the last couple of years is a is a, I guess it's an edited volume by Paul Ashwin and a whole load of other people, which there's about 15 authors, so I won't, I won't list them all, um, called Reflective Teaching in Higher Education. And I really like, and I think it 
it does what we try to do in our work, which is to bring together that strong theoretical evidence-based um, approach with, with something very practical and applied. And, and there's also some exercises in there that you might want to try out with colleagues. So I really like that. I suppose that's the nature of our work. I see it as very much whether it's an educational technology or a more sort of education project. I see that what we're trying to do is work at that um, intersection between evidence-based practice, theory, and then application. That's brilliant. And I can see that you're a natural uh, podcast listener because a lot of that's about sort of dialogue and conversation as well. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, really, in, in some sense, to make change happen, we need to have those moments of dialogue and empowering dialogue where we try and create space for people to have voice. Um, two years ago, I led an undergraduate programme review across the institution, and, and I was absolutely adamant that we needed to have a, a moment of dialogue where we brought people together, staff, students, um, to have that dialogue about the programme, because without those moments of dialogue, processes like that can become tick boxy, um, and you're not going to achieve any sort of meaningful change. Well, that brings me on to um, number four, which uh, if you're a fan of How to Fail podcast, you'll like this question. So what's your biggest failure and your biggest success? Or what's something you're most proud of and, and least proud of in, in the times that you've been working in the space? Yes, great. I suppose I am really proud of um, the establishment of the Eden Centre and the journey we went on to create the Eden Centre. And, and alongside that, I'm really proud and I did not think this would happen for many years that I've actually um, managed to build a career for myself alongside raising three children. And I, I think that's really, really something that, that should be um, shouted out more. I think earlier on in my career, I think I sort of was very keen not to mention my children too much because I didn't mm -hmm. want to, people to judge me because I had children and I was also, I wanted them to see me as a serious person in the <laughs> institution and, and, and not have assumptions about me because I also um, decided to have children and I'm very happy that I did. And um, I suppose in terms of biggest failures, and I'm really grappling with that at the moment, um, is that I find it really and really hard to put down boundaries. Um, I find that work seeps into all aspects of my life, to be honest. Um, and I find it hard to switch off. And so I think that it, you know, I've thought about this a lot, but it's it's not something that I feel in any way that I've um, made headway into, to be honest. Well, um, I absolutely love both of those because I can totally relate. And um, isn't it crazy that we we, we feel that, um, you know, we should hide our sort of procreation, which the whole sort of human species <laughs> depends on? Really yeah, I think, yeah, it is. I, you know, I've, it's, it's a really kind of complex topic. I think it mm. maybe it's somewhere to do, the, I mean, I don't want to arrive at glib conclusions, but I think it relates to the fact that women seem to feel they have a lot to do to prove Mm. their place and value in the workplace still i mean with the with all the changes that have happened um there is an element of that um and and then much else besides and finally how do you approach so-called change management tasks okay so that's a that's a big topic um i suppose um i always start by trying to talk to other colleagues depending on what it is, both inside and outside the institution. We have a great network. Um, there's a Heads of Educational Development group 
which, which is a great space for sharing practice, sharing experience, getting mentoring, getting ideas. Um, so I try and consult widely. Um, I um, I'm sort of as an academic, I I always try and look at what research already exists on the topic. So I, there's quite a lot of preparation that, that goes on, mm. and I and I and I think that um, in terms of institutional change. I'm sort of informed by my background as a political scientist, um, which leads me to um, have a perspective on the complexities of institutional change and what the enablers as well as the constraints might be, depending on what you're trying to do. And then I try and identify people who can work with me. Um, one other step would be trying to get hold of what data we have available. Um, and, and, and I think that's something that we're trying to do better and more and more to draw on the data we have in terms of both quantitative and qualitative data and analyze that to try and inform what we're doing. And, and perhaps interestingly enough, um, the hardest thing about change management is trying to be really clear about what it is you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and I, I think I've been involved and led on projects where I wasn't clear and also projects where I've been clearer. Um, and I think sort of just taking that forward, two final things is it's really important to, and again, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, I've excelled all the time in this area, but to keep colleagues um, on board, to remain consultative and communicative throughout, and then to review and evaluate as you go as well. You know, you mentioned it, you raised um, three children, which is a, an epic achievement. And meanwhile, you're working in um, higher education. I just wondered if we could trace your steps from the Eden Centre today, what were you doing before and how did you get to setting up the centre? Yeah, it's really nice to be able to um, reflect on that. Well, actually, um, I've been on quite a disciplinary journey, as many people have. And so my first degree actually was in modern languages. I studied Russian and French. And I um, ended up spending a year in what was then the Soviet Union and found myself on top of the language being increasingly fascinated by the study of history and politics and so I then started moving on this process of disciplinary transition if you can call it that and um, moved into the field of political science and and that's as a political scientist that's how I originally joined the LSE which is where I've been now for 20 years um, which is a really long time (laughs) and um I worked for many years at the LSE's European Institute, which is basically an academic department which chooses to call itself an institute because of, I think, the multidisciplinary um, nature of what they're teaching. And I, I worked there as an academic um, for, for quite some years, and I was um, teaching and doing research on um, issues relating to political economy of Central and Eastern Europe. And But during that time, I was struggling a little bit to... Well, quite a lot actually to juggle a young family and also the huge demands of academia um, on people and I found myself more and more interested in, in the education side of my role you know sort of education practice teaching practice what works what doesn't work how do you how do you ensure that all students are having an opportunity to participate well, LSE is a really international university and it it can easily happen that in a seminar group of 15 students, you can have 15 people from different countries, which is wonderful. Um, but, you know, with all the richness of those cultural and educational backgrounds, how do you also make a space for everyone? And so I gradually started to move into an educational development role. 
And interestingly enough, in relation to the, the, the subject of this podcast, or at least the title, the EdTech Podcast, I was originally brought into what was then our teaching and learning centre um, to work two days a week. And one of my key um, tasks when I first joined was to start thinking about how could we, so this was back in 2010, interestingly, how could we begin the process of integrating uh, engagement and study of learning technologies and their role in teaching learning and education more broadly and 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 so then over over a number of years I moved from working two days a week three days a week four days a week five (laughs) days a week (laughs) and then and now I don't know how many days a week it is but a lot um and that but but for from for a lot of that period um I was I was working in the teaching and learning center and then became head of the teaching and learning center um and then last July no, July 2018 now, our Learning Technology and Innovation Unit, which was a separate unit looking at the enhancement of education through the engagement application um, and innovation um, in terms of the use of learning technologies inside and outside the classroom. Um, That team was moved over under my leadership and we began a process of review, which over a year, in fact, which resulted in the establishment of the LSE Eden Centre. And so the main um, evolution there being, um, if I've understood correctly, is bringing together the sort of academic side of it and then the learning technologies and actually having those two different skill sets working alongside one another to best support students and teaching and learning. Yeah, that's right. And and in, and, and parallel to that process, um, at LSE is an institution, as I mentioned earlier, it's a research intensive university and, and, I, and it, it's only in the last few years that it's really begun to um, take, I mean, some colleagues would disagree with me, but there you go, <laughs> take the education side of its role as a higher education institution more seriously. Um, and I think the establishment of the Eden Centre um, is testimony to that. Um, we, a new, um, we call our pro-vice-chancellors, pro-directors here, but a new pro-director, um, Dilly Fung, was appointed to the institution in August 2018. Um, and I've actually worked on a piece of research previously with, um, with Dilly Fung. And she started in consultation widely across the school with members of the academic community and the professional services community, of course. The elaboration of um, the strategic priorities around education under our overarching LSE as part of our overarching LSE 2030 strategy. And so as I was trying with colleagues as part of our own review process to design what the Eden Centre might be, I was very mindful of the key priorities emerging out of our new institutional strategy because I think that um, one of the reasons why educational development, educational development with technology work is so interesting is that we occupy a really interesting um, in between space, you could call it a liminal space in higher education institutions, because we, although many people in the team will have an academic background, our roles are professional service roles. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in a way, we're, we're bridging the academic community and the professional services community. And also, we need to be in line with strategy and be connected to strategy, but we don't want to get too close because then we might lose that a certain degree of critical autonomy and it's those difficult um it is those difficult territories that i think 
we're trying to navigate all the time um, and sometimes we're more successful at it than others um, and and the Eden Center in a way um, it is the result of of a bottom-up set of thinking and review about who we are and what we do but in also close um, consultation and alignment with the strategic priorities of the institution going forward. Yeah I think that's so interesting because part of being a you know change maker if we're going to use that term is probably retaining that critical autonomy and that ability to create new ideas and share new ideas and hopefully have them uh, considered as well so really good point. And I think in terms of sort of being a change maker in an institution like this, where we've got a very, uh, our academic departments, we have 26 academic departments, all nominally in the social sciences. Uh, they've enjoyed a, a great degree of departmental autonomy for many years. And so, you know, if they think that all we're here to do is, <laughs> is, kind of, is trot out um, or, or sort of implement, impose from on high, um, some actions based on a, a sort of very high level strategy. I think we alienate the community that we want to work with, and and so it is and cooperate with and and learn from and and learn together. And so I've got here so some of the work that the Eden Centre uh, does, which I thought was really interesting, is supporting the review and enrichment of curricula, including through harnessing learning technologies, um, offering colleagues professional development. Um, overseeing and supporting school-wide learning systems and then it also mentions um, three portals so the LSE assessment toolkit the academic mentoring portal and the new GTA portal yes and then finally um, the opportunity to support uh, innovation through an Eden fund for innovation and change Um, So I'd love to touch on some of those, especially, you know, being able to proactively invest and then also um, perhaps assessment, because assessment often comes up as the thing that might trigger kind of wider change if if we kind of move away from our traditional assessment. Yeah, so maybe we can start um, with assessment. So um, I mentioned earlier that I was asked to lead this um, undergraduate programme review. And one of the principles that the programme review was um, focused on was assessment diversification. And you're talking about an environment here where there ha- traditionally there's been an overwhelming emphasis on end-of-year closed book exams. Um, in the quantitative disciplines, you'd find people also doing problem sets throughout the year. Sometimes those would count to final assessment and sometimes they wouldn't. And a lot of essay work. Um, and we were trying to encourage the notion that that you need to broaden out your assessment um, and then on the basis that the way students are assessed will shape the way they approach their learning. So if we're trying to think more broadly about the kinds of skills, knowledge sets, attitudes we want our students to develop, then we need to develop, design our curriculum and our assessments accordingly. And so as part of this process, we, we developed the LSE assessment toolkit um, and, and which was which is a way to sort of get colleagues to think about both processes of a assessment design and choosing methods of assessment because I don't think we're talking about here sort of gimmicky choices we're talking about actually reasoned scholarly decisions about what is an appropriate way to assess on a particular course or program and 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 so the the toolkit talks about um 
methods. It talks about modes of assessment. It talks about assessment design in the context of the broader program. And I think that one of the things which is really interesting that came out of that process is we did see some really exciting um, moves towards assessment diversification, but we also saw um, in quite a lot of cases a reluctance to give up the exam. So people just added more assessment into the existing assessment menu. So now we have a situation, I wouldn't say it's across the board because some people did take assessments out, but we do feel we are facing a situation of over-assessment now and that has sort of huge implications for the for the well-being of everybody in the institution staff and students and I think what we're what we need to do more about it is um is really bedding down that notion of a program level approach to to assessment design um, people and I remember this myself um, people have very high levels of ownership over the courses so the modules or the units they teach and, and the program directors can um, have very little authority they just maybe have their personal authority and efficacy but you know re- very limited actual tools and so I think that's an area that is I from what I understand it's across the sector ripe for further development and and going forward, I suppose one of the um, projects that the Eden Centre has been working on in the last year, and this is very much the sort of, um, what can I say, the brainchild of, of Dilly Fung, is the notion of showcase portfolios. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and what we would, I mean, if we, if we were to fast forward, the vision would be that all students, I'm not sure we'll ever get there, but that all students would, during their time on a programme, be... Um, curating a showcase portfolio where they're selecting um, particular assessments that they've worked on and these might be much more diversified including a whole range of e-assessments and they curate them into a portfolio which which basically demonstrates the intellectual learning journey they've been on during their time in the institution and it's a way of pulling together pulling together that journey and and the reason that Dilly calls this a showcase portfolio is because the idea is that we would we would find a technology which the students could um take with them Mm -hmm. so it's not something that's stuck on a moodle page that they lose um you know in mahara that they lose when they leave the institution but this is a portfolio that they could take with them and use to showcase their work to outside audiences and it's a shame that so much assessment in universities an exam or an essay never sees the light of day beyond the time you've worked on it and, and, and the person who's marking it. So that's kind of some of the stuff around um, what we're doing in the area of assessment. It's a very live topic, I have to say. Fantastic. That's really, really interesting. And I know um, yeah, there are lots of organisations trying to get their head around that space um and then the and then the investment one caught my eye because I saw an email this week which was about uh creator fund I don't know if you've heard of that but um no. it's essentially a fund that's been set up founders factories are also backing it to support um groundbreaking ventures and visionary student founders so again sort mm. of trying to source um, and support student entrepreneurs, I suppose. I was just interested in the, the Fund for Strategic Innovation and Change and, and, and the Student Experience Enhancement Fund and, and what you've got in mind there and whether anything's um, been backed to date or whether it's kind of something going forward. Yeah, so, um, I mean, there are three funds I'll briefly refer to, the two you mentioned and then one other. So we have... Um, 
the Eden Strategic and Innovation Change Fund, as you mentioned, and um, and we were hoping that that would be um, a fund that people would apply to, and we still hope they will, to really undertake some groundbreaking curriculum change work, which might involve the application of technologies at the heart of the curriculum, and but might not. It might involve some sort of um, civic engagement project or um, big group research project, anything really which would enhance um, the programme curriculum and, the, I suppose, education more broadly. Um, to date, to be honest, um, we haven't had that many applications to that fund. And I think that's partly because, and this does relate to an interesting question about change and making change, change management, is I think that there's a perception in the institution that there's a lot of change going on and people just don't have the time to um, to invest in in developing a sort of detailed application so we're thinking of moving to a much more simplified application process whereby people would um, put in an expression of interest and we're going to um, make we're, we're going to put some expectations on our departmental advisors here mm. in Eden Centre that that part of their work with departments will be to try and encourage much more concrete dialogue about the types of change projects departments might engage in and even help them with the writing of the application so we can make it as easy as possible for them um, so that's the strategic innovation and change fund I mean at the moment we've decided to invest some of the money in in the work the institution is trying to do around student mental health and well-being um, and also around inclusive education the student experience enhancement fund was really is a much smaller fund and it's trying to um, create an easy win for departments to develop projects, activities, initiatives to enhance or to develop or to build a sense of um, learning and social community in the institution. I think universities in London um, in particular face challenges around building community and I think also, I mean, LSE up until quite recently had a much bigger postgraduate population than undergraduate population and I think you know we, we we're very keen to make sure our undergraduates feel that they're fully fledged members of the community and that and that we want to work with them and partner with them and hear their voice and and the student experience enhancement fund we've had some great applications we've got um, I just reviewed an application from students in our psychological and behavioral science department and they want to organize something called utopian labs where they bring <laughs> people together and uh, 20 students together and they have a debate discussion around issues relating to notions of utopia but then we've also funded things like um, meet the researcher where students have the opportunity to meet and learn from academics in the department and share breakfast or lunch together so some sort of social learning activity and the third fund is the LSE Changemakers um, which I suppose is appropriate given the title of this podcast and Absolutely. What, what that is is a um, pot of money which students can apply for to undertake research projects about education at LSE and the idea there is that they will come up hopefully with recommendations that we can then try and implement to make to make education and life as a student here better. Last question I suppose um, for anyone listening in who is um, facing a task similar to yours so um you know 
possibly either combining the learning technology and sort of academic advisory roles um, in, in one central department or some other example of uh, a big change project within the university. Um, is there any advice that you would give them or um, anything that you've learned from the process that, that you would kind of impart? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I should say that we're still in process. So we've just, um, we've come, we've, the Eden Centre was launched and, um, and, and now we're um, in the midst of a process of restructure, which I hope is a positive restructure. Um, I think um, things I've learned um, include um, make, try and try, and I know people get incredibly busy, and so this is where it becomes difficult. But try to be as consultative as possible. Bring people along with you, um, and you know you can learn so much from different people's perspectives. So consultation is not is not um, an added extra. It's absolutely fundamental to the process. And then also, obviously, communication, keeping people up to date. Um, the other thing I think is is to take a long view, um, change takes time. Actually, fundamentally, it seems to me that both in relation to the Eden Centre and, and the broader change education change agenda at LSE, it's a cultural change process. And so changing cultures take time. Um, and I think you need to have the long view. And so I'm, or I try and take a long view in terms of what we're trying to achieve at an institutional level and with our engagement with departments and I also try to take a long view in relation to the Eden Centre so I'll give you just one quick example so right now we still have a clear academic development team and a learning technology team and although we're trying to integrate more and more in terms of the work we do it's they're two two separate teams and there's a possibility that you know in a couple of years time will we move towards more hybrid roles um mm. Can you have conversations really these days around education and, and good education and good inclusive education and leave discussion of the digital out? Um, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. So I, I think that's something potentially on the horizon. And, um, and also the, another thing I grapple with is do we have in the centre, as we, do we remain as we have in the centre now, um, we tend to have generalists. So our academic developers are generalists. People have particular areas of specialization, but we're basically generalists. Everybody does a bit of everything. And the same with the learning technologists. But do we, over time, move to more specialized roles? So I, and I, think, and I think the other thing I suppose I should say finally is that it can be quite lonely um, leading a process of change. Um, <laughs> And I think so. I think it's really good to have networks of, and those might be Twitter networks. Um, you can learn so much from the Twitter sphere. Those might be um, colleagues working in other institutions who've been through similar processes. Um, so those are some of the things that come to mind. And how do you recharge when you've had one of those days where it feels like the world's slightly against you, but you know perhaps the next day will be better? Okay, so um, I have a beer. Fantastic. Good start. And um, obviously, I still have one child left at home. Um, <laughs> and so that's lovely. I go home and see her. And I've got a really, I do have a good network of friends who don't see enough of. And I suppose another thing that I love to do um, is go to the theatre. Claire, thank you so much. It's been really, really insightful. And uh, yeah, we, we wish you the best at the Eden Centre. And uh, thank you for sharing 
your many years building up all these amazing ways of kind of improving teaching and learning as well with us well well thank you and i've actually really enjoyed having the opportunity to reflect on your questions been great thanks so much bye-bye bye That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening in and huge thank you to all of my guests and salesforce.org for supporting. You can continue the conversation online at hashtag edtechedge at podcastedtech and at salesforce.org on all the social medias or for all the show notes, including resource and reading recommendations. It's the edtechpodcast.com. Have a great week. Stay safe and keep smiling. Bye bye.